Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWendelik.com podcast. In this podcast, we keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Drew Freeman and Nishant Trivasta. Thanks, Ray. This is the RayWendelik.com podcast. Welcome to episode one for season 11. This episode was recorded on Saturday, the 21st of November, 2020, for release on the 9th of December. This episode is sponsored by the language Scala and by the imaginary number I. I'm Drew Freeman, along with my partner in crime, Nishant Srivastava. Thanks, Drew. In this episode, we begin our dive into the book Living by the Code and talk with Paco Estavez Garcia, who is a software engineer working with developer productivity and performance tools. He enjoys functional programming and video game development. Paco, welcome to the show. Hey, how's everybody doing? Good. All good. And yourself? Ah, enjoying a little bit of the Spanish sun. Uh, we're getting a couple of like 20 degrees days here. So I'm really happy that I can get some sunlight in my skin and not be like right in London. Like it's usually around this time. Where in Spain are you? Uh, I'm from the, uh, the central parts, like the boring parts. Uh, I call it the <laughs> Spanish Midwest for the Americans. So they get like a frame of reference. So you go out <laughs> and there's basically like wheat fields and cows and like, yeah, like that kind of place. That's an interesting place to be in. <laughs> but the weather, I mean, you're, you're closer to the equator. So the weather's nicer. Exactly. We still have like 15, 20 degrees around this time. Um, the crops are doing okay. It's plenty of sunlight. And probably like I, we have a couple of like new years where it was proper sunny. And I love that basically. Oh, that's wonderful. So where is Spain right now as far as things like lockdown? Are you currently in a lockdown or is it still more open in there? Uh, it's so-and-so. So basically I cannot go out after 10 p.m., which means this interview is like okay. right after the interview, I can run off, just like get a little bit of fresh air and then go back home. <laughs> And, and other than that, like some small towns are locked uh, when they have like a little like a break. Uh, they have a handful of people like getting COVID at the same time kind of thing. And you can cross certain communities. But basically, like if you're in your small town and you're not minding anybody else, I think it's very safe. Everybody's wearing masks. Everybody's just like using the gel. Everybody's like making sure that everybody else is not getting the COVID because we know like we're in this together. And we want to get out as soon as possible. We really do. Yeah, I, I, I Seriously. every now and then I look at the web page, where can Americans travel right now? And the list is just so short. Assuming you're not locked down, what do you typically do for fun outside? So uh, for a little bit, I, I was, I'm doing, I follow me a lot of Twitter, you know, uh, with the kids these days called doom scrolling which is just following the news and seeing the latest development <laughs> <laughs> and, and seeing like election and all that kind of stuff. But um, I mean, watching conferences, reading books, like still following all the, the development, like the parts of the development community that I'm interested in. That's something that I do even on my spare time. And then I have the usual suspect of like Netflix show, video games. I play board games a lot, whether it's physical, solo, or like digital over tabletop simulator. Uh, sometimes I like make my own print and plays with like some games that I bought in Kickstarter or something, because that's apparently what relaxes me. Just being with a pair of scissors, just thinking like, eh, it didn't work today, but I'm going to make it work tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm currently working on a game simulator with my son, and it's uh, I, I and I have no background in game development whatsoever, so it's been a learning process for both of us. He's he's learning how coding works, and I'm learning the the concepts of game simulations. So, oh, it's a lot of fun. That, that's a bit of a journey. The whole idea of of this came from the the idea of we read 
uh, living by the code. And, and a lot of us sat down and said, God, I'd love to just sit down at a bar with this person and, and pick their brain for more and, and, and ask them more details. So that's sort of where we're going to be going with this, because you, you said so many great things in the book, and we want to pick your brain for a little bit more of, of these gems that you have. Oh, sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> I really enjoy <laughs> this. I heard like Ray Wenderlich is providing the beers for the bar. I don't know. I'm still <laughs> waiting for the to say it. Well, if it goes off of uh, if it goes off of the account that we have for the uh, the podcast, I wouldn't hold my breath. <laughs> uh, so, one of the things I wanted to ask you was that you talked about uh, Pratchett's Night Watch as one of the books that really affected you. Yes. Um, and you you use the phrase that it, it changed your raison de vivre. I've heard people say the raison d'être. A reason to be, but you said reason de vivre, which is more reason to live. And I'm, I'm curious how how did it affect you? Why did you choose that phrase? Uh, first, I'm uneducated, so probably I got it wrong. I need to correct that for the second edition. But it it, it was yeah, it was something. It was something like that. It was basically like uh, I'm from this small town. We the possibilities in here are very limited, uh, whether where I was growing up or right now. And it was the case, oh, actually, I don't have it in here. But for, for a number of years, I used to have like a panel strip hanging above, above this wall. This is like where the room where I grew up and some of my things are still here. And, and the panel set is a, is a picture of like a dad and a son in like a typical rural environment. And the dad is just telling the son, study and get out. Like that's literally that's 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 what passes as a comic strip in like a local paper, and and I had that hanging over my wall because that was the thing that my parents told me when I was young: study, do something that you enjoy, and like get get out of here. And when I started thinking, like, what is the what is the kind of life that you can that you can see outside of Spain? And and I read the Terry Pratchett books, and it's like this is completely different to the kind of people that I've met and and the things that I've enjoyed. This is big city life, even if it's like fantasy big city life. You can see some of the parts of like like English countryside kind of thing. It's like okay, maybe this is something that I want to enjoy for a number of years. I'm gonna go abroad. I want to meet these people. I want to see what he, what is it like out there. And my space was very limited up until the point when I went to university. So you can talk about diversity. You can talk about anything else. Like I didn't get to meet people from very far from my town up until I was 18. And then all of a sudden, all of the, all, it all happened in a very short period of time. And like six years later, I was living abroad. And now it's like 15 years later, and I've been living abroad for that long. And I've met people from everywhere. I've went to like all the way from California to Asia to everywhere else. and. And it, it all started on, on those books, like saying, hey, there's a little bit more out there than, than small, <laughs> small, very enjoyable rural life, but, but there's a little bit more. And, and I enjoy that a lot. It's great. Your quote at the beginning is, uh, code's not always the hardest part of the job. It's still interpersonal relationships, uh, communicating with stakeholders, gathering information. A uh, colleague once always said to me, it's not a code problem, it's a people problem. Yes, very, very correct, very wise. And and I'm curious, what is the journey of learning how to deal with the different types of people? It's a long journey. It's something that you accumulate, that you're accumulating over time, right? Uh, the first job that I joined in, it was a group of personalities that were developing this mobile, oh, so actually it was a game application 
where you have somebody that was really introvert, you have some colleagues that were young as I was, uh, there were somebody, some people that were in the middle, so the seniors wanted to see the juniors go more, and as you move across different jobs and at different teams and you meet more people, you start seeing repeating patterns of personality, but at the same time, you start seeing a little bit more variety. So you start forming your own playbook. It's like, okay, here's a tough, hard-earned person who likes things straight and wants to get things done. What can work for him? Oh, this is his intrinsic or his extrinsic motivations to get things done. And then you try to align yourself or to empathize with what they want, why do they want it, and how you can you can get a result out of that. And sometimes there's conflict. Sometimes there's people who are not willing to cooperate, and and you have to get yourself out of the situation because that's also part of the job. So by getting yourself into a lot of trouble, by making a lot of mistakes, <laughs> by oh my god, so many mistakes, but and learning from them, probably that's the that's the two important parts. You make the mistake, and then you learn, and then you apply the changes. At the end. You're still doing terribly, but at, but at least you can. Sometimes you can get you can keep the right spots with the right people and get some of those things out. You mentioned empathy. How do you teach or encourage empathy, or better yet, how do you? Well, it's sort of a two sided question. How do you how do you encourage or teach empathy, and then how do we deal with those who just can't do it? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, those who can do it actually they they end with the problems themselves. It's I wouldn't say it's a self-sorting problem, but on the long term, it kind of it kind of happens. So if you have one person who cannot work with anybody else, they're not going to work with anybody else. People are going to be complaining. There's going to be a lot of churn around that person. And then he's going to be moving companies, moving projects, or he's going to be isolated in a project by themselves. And at that point, like the career is, is hitting almost a dead end. So I've seen this happen where people who were technically brilliant they were, you could not work with them. And what happened after six months or after a year, you realize, hey, how's your project going? I cannot get any traction. Why? Well, I'm coding 12 hours a day. I'm coding weekends and still I'm not getting the job done. It's like, yeah, because that's a two-person job, but nobody wants to work with you. So either you play nice and then we help you or you don't and we're not going to want to help you and the company is going to lose for it. So the managers are going to have to intervene to solve that problem because somebody's actually a productivity net loss for the company, even if it's like a, a productivity positive as an individual. And that's not good. I've, uh, I've faced that more than once, obviously, in my career. But the, uh, the really terrifying situation is when you get that one non-empathetic engineer who's very brilliant and is the pet student of the manager. Oh. So the rest of the team is off to the side trying to deal with this, and there's basically no traction to fix the problem. Then what I see is there's a lot of churn in that department. You turn over. We we, we talked about that team and how it had turned over uh, 11 employees on a four-person team in two years. I've seen that. <laughs> I've, I've seen that. I mean, I've been out of that situation myself. And what what happened in your case? I left. <laughs> 
I've uh, I've definitely seen um, similar situations myself, and in those cases, uh, there's this star employee, as you call them, um, and they are basically trying to take up um, most of the work and try to do everything on their own. Uh, but obviously, because they are not as empathetic and they are not trying to do the work um, with other people, work together with them, um, mostly that has not worked out, and and people obviously leave around them or they are the ones jumping between companies uh, because no one wants to work with them so yeah so that's that's something i feel like is also something that everyone is possibly seeing in in the current uh, generation as well as like obviously in, in the past also i think you see less of it now in uh, that general move toward agile in the workplace predominantly because everybody does have to work with each other. Everybody has to uh, account for tasks and, and not take off too much. I think the, the days of the raw meat coder who you basically would shove uh, requirements under their door and they would churn out code and that's about their entire social life. I think that's really fading away. In At least from what I've seen, the in larger companies, there tends to be a lot of inter-department communication, right? I was in Reuters and I was working with, we were the mobile development team and we have to work with people in, in um, Minnesota. And these people in Minnesota, they were three different teams with, who also collaborated with people in London, but in a different department. And you have to interact with all those people just to get something out of the door. The technical part, like you can sit down and coding in a weekend. Like getting those people to agree what the technical bits are, what is the deployment rate, who's going to own it long term, and those kind of things, that's something that has to be part of your skill set. If it isn't, it's not that you're useless, but you're going to need somebody who is complementing those skills for you. And at that point, you're not the star employee. You're, you and the other person are the star employees together, and you are useless without that person who can do it for you. So, again, it's, it's a problem that, that, that is not really well sustained. Something, something that I've seen happening in the past, um, instead of going, uh, you mentioned that you saw the, that the engineer was the, the manager's pet. I've gone to the skip. You say, okay, I'm going to jump like one or two layers mm-hmm. above and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell him like, hey, you know that a lot of people are living. Is this your problem or is this not a problem for you? And if this is not a problem for the company, I just say I'm out. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna solve it. I, I did the uh, the managerial jump to work on a project that I enjoyed working on, but the further problem was that the manager himself was incredibly toxic and dangerous. And after a while, um, that's really the turnover was coming from was was just a very toxic and dangerous manager. And there's not much you can do about that, especially if that manager is the pet of somebody higher up we are talking about more or less i think communication here uh, between uh, these different employees or like uh, engineers uh, do you think that is the one that if improved could could lead to better results in this situations or not you need you need those great engineers to lead some of uh, some of those projects right and seniority can go both ways uh, the way that you can grow as an engineer is actually being able to handle more scope but more scope doesn't mean more code or your code base is larger. It's actually, you know, the 10 people who are responsible for the different parts and you make sure they coordinate with your own efforts. So between everybody else, you get the work done. Like that's, yeah. that's the real superpower is horizontal scaling. 
Like it's cash and horizontal scaling. You cannot cash your own stuff. Maybe you can write libraries. But other than that, like horizontal scaling is the only solution. And for that, you need to influence more and more people and influence in a, in a good step. Like inspire, if you prefer, or leadership kind of thing. If you try to reign by fear or... Yeah something very similar like the team may turn out something good once or twice but it's not it tends not to be a repeating pattern mm. it's not a good formula to have no. <laughs> no i i like you said you know you learn from the mistakes and then you grow from them uh in my current position as an architect i've been blessed to be basically be the one who nurtures the engineers and i found one engineer who really began to shine early on and and every time a new project would come up or a special leading type thing i would basically direct to her uh i tell the the, the scrum masters etc let's put her on this project to nurture her and she's basically become one of our top lead developers as a result and it, it's being able to nurture those folks who who stand out or have the potential yeah and helping seen, them grow i think yeah Mm-hmm. Yes, I I believe that's one of the most underrated things in in the industry is that you can actually grow talent. And I read about this a while ago. I think it was Joel on Software or somebody from from that perspective saying there's a whole handful of people who are just coming out of university, and at the moment where they leave university, they may not be useful, but they have that potential, and then they grow that potential within one company. And then the next time they jump to the next one, they understand their own value. So they are going to be choosing the next one that they jump over and number of times over. So actually, the only time that you have to get them is when they're just coming out of university. Afterwards, they just disappear from their market that you have visibility on. So you're actually better off getting them young, growing the app, fixing some of like those problems, and then at some point you have to let them go or you have to take somebody similar. But during that period of time, they're going to be doing like such a great job. And there are many companies who are making use of that policy. And you can see it on the results. You can see that they're able to get a lot of things done because these people have the energy and they have the potential and they are not as limited on some of the preconceptions that you may have. And I, I've seen that. I've seen people doing that. And oh, my God, it's so enjoyable. I appreciate your your statement, how you, you nurture them along and then they go to their next job, trusting their abilities. I, that part I could still use. I've been in the industry 35 years and I still don't trust my abilities. I... <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe there's a little bit of hobbies when you're young and, and you're still doing it. But... <laughs> I still sit there going, oh, I guess I can do that. Oh, yay. <laughs> We start. We start uh, at the beginning, and then we basically nurture them till they are good, uh, good enough, and maybe nurture future generations or like the new, new uh, set of software engineers who are coming in. So yeah, that definitely makes sense. But do you think in the current um, situation that we have right now, the pandemic and everything, and every everything shifting to remote work, um, is that gonna be affecting the flow of of how we do this, how we approach this, or also in terms of like the communication process between different teams, as we mentioned uh, earlier, would those be affected in a certain way that uh, that would be detrimental maybe, or would it go into the positive direction because we have now more communication happening uh, over video calls and like over standard calls. And, and obviously they have, there's so much content out there that the people, those who are coming out of the university, they could also now grab onto all this information. They can read up the living by the code book, right? And they can start <laughs> 
thinking about these concepts more often than they would have in say 10 years back or something right i something that i've seen like uh, I'll, i'll put one example because it's an easy one like i have one cousin who's still in university he's finishing electrical engineer or something and and i told him like hey why don't you get an internship at one large company whatever nvidia amd apple whatever like one of them that that is hardware is like I don't feel like living in Spain right now. Like things are not good. And it's like, that's perfect. Because right now, all the re- all the internships are happening remote. So if you want to do it from like your parents' house or no budget at all and make money for three to six months, now is the right time. You can do it. We're we're hiring like I've seen people, I've seen people hire from everywhere around the globe on the on condition that they move to the place where they have to be working on right and this is happening to every one of us and even if like even when you talk to recruiters these days they are sending you always messages in linkedin and you tease them right and you go like do you accept fully remote because i have a beach in like southern spain that i really want to live in with this house and they just go like oh no sorry like london only or or whatever singapore these other places it's like you know you're missing out right (laughs) You're, you're missing out on the beach too. I could invite you if you if you wanted to come, but I think that's the biggest that's the biggest improvement. Now, day to day communication a little bit harder because, well, depending on your personality. But me myself, I will just go and like make a crumple a ball and just throw it at one of my colleagues while they're focused because I'm that kind of like you know nasty person. But um, <laughs> nasty, no naughty person. Sorry, <laughs> and. <laughs> English, right? How does it work? I spent a couple of weeks in Spain and I forgot everything about it. Uh, <laughs> but it, yeah, those kind of interactions with just people are just like, why are you throwing me the balls? And then it's like Nerf gun or whatever, like something that, that makes a little bit of like personality. Whereas right now, if I want to talk to somebody, I need to either schedule a call or like open a chat window and then schedule the call. I cannot annoy them in, a, in an active way, in a way that shows like this love and this this respect for the other person <laughs> that you this love and respect for their autonomy it's just like you must exactly. really miss aol instant messenger with that whole thing that would make their whole screen bounce yes <laughs> <laughs> i mean we, i miss that i don't know when we were teenagers we used to like call each other and just go like one beep or one bus or something and then hang out hang out it was like a poke right and we would just spend hours poking each other kind of thing and yeah, I was I was annoying. <laughs> I'm still annoying, but you know, in a different way, in a more mature and and wise way, right? 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 <laughs> yes, having fun with your uh, with your colleagues is something that maybe pro- probably is not possible as of now, but hopefully in future we can definitely do that. Yeah. I have to add in that that Ray when he talked about running a fully remote company, talked about the idea that you have conferences but you make sure they're video conferences. Because it's too easy to lose track of a person when it's strictly audio. When yeah. it's video, you do get the face, you do get the intermix with the person. And uh, my company, everything obviously, like everybody else, is remote right now. Um, but our conferences are often 16 to 30 blocks with just names in them. And I, I always leave my video on. Um, sometimes I'm the only one in the room doing it, but it's it's an ability for people to to see me and, and see my reaction to things. And the number yeah. of times I yawn. <laughs> oh. 
I'm still not there. I'm not still not there on the yawning yet. I, I, I could. Some meetings, I'm just like, here's Twitter on the side. I'm like scrolling a little bit while people are talking. But... Really? Yeah. I mean, well, you've got that that schedule. You said in in Living by the Code, you, you said that you do a couple of hours midday, then you stop, and then you do a couple of hours after midnight. Yes, exactly. And that, that's not necessarily a luxury everybody has. <laughs> no, no, I, I understand. And I, some, they, I mean, I, like, this was something that was asked me very often, especially like I was more active in open source, let's say two or three years ago. Also, fewer responsibilities, more work, more time, like no lockdown kind of thing. And that, that was basically it. I said, okay, uh, I'm still going to go for drinks with my friends. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. But, you know, after me time is me time. And I'm going to get two or three hours. And that's about it. That time is time that all the people spend either sleeping, uh, going on dates or doing some other stuff. And for myself, I found more enjoyment doing this kind of things. And I understand it was a trade-off. I don't know if it was a good one. I don't know if it was a mistake. And at some point in the last year, let's say a year and a half or so, I said, okay, uh, I'm going to start doing a little bit less of open source and I'm going to restart going out and I'm going to get myself back into the dating sites and I'm going to start doing these things. And it's a trade-off that you have to make. And I told this also to some intern and junior engineers that I've spoken to. They tell me like, oh, if I work 12 hours for the next five years, I'm going to be rich by 30. It's like, yes. What, 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 what would happen then? Like, what, what, what have you done? I was, I was going for a walk with my dad and we were having a joke. It's like, yeah, I talked to these people. They started working by 24. They were like, great. They're senior engineers. And by 24, I have a, a distinct memory of being incredibly drunk in Germany, like incredibly drunk with a friend, because that's the stuff that we did when we were 24, or like even in university or those kind of things. I was For me, it was not that immediate jump of like study, work 12 hours a day, being rich by 30. I'm not, I'm not there yet. I'm not rich yet, sadly. <laughs> I'm not rich, but I'm comfortable. But I've also taken a slower path, and yeah. and I'm happy with that. So you you've opened the door to open source, and we should probably ask you some of these questions. We should probably because you you talk quite a bit about open source, and you're quite a a contributor to open source. One of the real important topics was some of the difficulties that you face, or some of the difficulties found in contributing to open source. Yes. What do you find is the reluctance in companies from open source? I know that, you know, some companies don't like open source. And what do you feel are those reluctances? So the first one, and this was the most clear, is an IP problem, right? Some companies have a department that is not comfortable with intellectual property rights. And understanding the difference between, or not understanding, but wanting to deal with the nuances of what code can be public and what code can be private. And can we get sued for private code because we have done something public and the license requires that all code related to this is actually open sourceable. So that is time that you have to take from your lawyers that becomes money. And at some point, if your company is not like very tech aligned, that feels like overhead. That overhead is also the reason why other companies can do it. So you can say, okay, we're going to have an open source policy and that open source policy serves a purpose. And the purpose can be either we need external contributions, we want more hiring, 
we want to hire some of those contributors that are happening externally, or simply we want to for people to understand our technology better so they can come up with their own solutions, integrations in our own platform. Those are things that I've seen companies do, but as a strategy, I found it more rare that companies do do things without any reason or the engineers are doing it behind the the like um the, the business reasons for doing it. I imagine it still happens for like small places, but mo- most of the time it needs to be a business reason. Even if the business reason is this engineer won't shut up about it. And it's small enough that it doesn't matter and they feel strongly about it. And I'm I'm happy with that. I'm happy with people like pushing for that within their, their own companies. And Sometimes if you see that return from that initial experience saying, hey, actually, this saved us N number of hours. So we got a number of contributions or even we have influence in a space that is kind of tangential to our whole ecosystem. Uh, Let's say that you have an app that is working on like healthcare. Oh, we have a really good protocol that is starting to be used by other apps or by several doctors. That means that we can grab a little bit more of the business side because we know more doctors would be interested in that kind of API or they are integrating with it. Or we see that somebody's made a third-party tool and this is something that we can also do within the business. So you hire that person in to build that experience within the company. That's also very frequent. So there can be a symbiotic relationship between the companies and the people doing open source. That is only from like the company and employee and an external perspective. That's not even about like I do open source for fun or for my own self-interest or I have my own script tooling for this this print and play games. I have my own set of scripts that are open source. So you can throw a couple of images from cards or something and it comes out with like a really nice layout. I put it in a group say, hey everybody who's doing print and plays, I have this open source tool that you can use this for yourself. And that's also enjoyable and you share that with people and people are happy about it. So Plenty of good reasons to do a business. Just, just get on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, uh, you talked about some of the the hurdles for newer programmers for open source. Uh, mentioning, um, oh, I've got to find it now because it, it jumped out at me. Snobism and gatekeeping. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, and I want to read this. Uh, I, I don't like reading a lot out of the out of a book, but. It's on each of us to be the ones taking the first step to make sure that your specific community is welcoming, that you're getting people from every avenue of life, you're teaching them, and you don't think of it in terms of what you're doing for them. Think of it instead of building something together. And this really resonated to me because I had just read an article about what makes up a fan in science fiction, yeah, which sounds completely different and unrelated, but it's that same concept of it doesn't matter how much they're contributing, if they want to contribute or if they want to be part of it, they're part of it. They're in the community just by showing their interest in it. And that should be nurtured. Yes. Um, Same as you're in Discord or any of these places. So you can see this is very, okay. You go into the animation community. I follow a lot of animators on Twitter because I like, (laughs) like animation and they come up with this collab. And it's like, they're going to do an episode or maybe like, um, I don't remember the, the English name for the show, but it's one like from Nickelodeon, it's a dog and it's a scare of everything. And they did a whole episode out of like five second cuts from animators from all over the world for free. 
I saw another project. They're making a board game from uh, Fire Emblem, which is a Nintendo IP, but every single drawing is drawn is drawn by a different artist. And they're just putting it together. They're making a board game and they're selling it for like pennies for each one of them because they feel like doing it. There's no big story about it. It's just like, I can do it. I can collaborate with other people. I feel joy when I do this. And it brings joy to third parties. And I think of open source the same way. If I join a project and they tell me like, ah, this is not good enough. You're not from a big enough company. You're never going to be able to support it. Uh, I, I've heard them all. Like I've heard them all. You're to focus on X, Y, instead, and and people being being like nasty. Now is the right nasty. Not right. You nasty. Being nasty to you. And and it's like why why is this happening? I'm just here to enjoy myself. I'm not doing this for a bigger reason or for a big story or for self promotion. Some of it you can do for self promotion, but some of it you just do it for fun. And that's the kind of people that I wanted to find. And when I was working on this on this project Arrow with all the rest of the Spaniards and some of the people that came in, like after a couple of months, it was like friends. These are these are my friends. These are the people when we go to conferences, we get together, we get these beers, we walk around, we tell stories, we meet with other people, <laughs> we make a front. And I can imagine the same for like doctors or everybody else. It's not it's a community, right? And and mm-hmm. communities are a big thing in and out of the internet. And it's one that you're building around the passion that you have, which is building software of a kind or building a product or building something that you find enjoyable. If you want to contribute to a large project with commercial interest, there's a good chance you're going to be turned away because they have commercial interest and they're gathering or the way that they're doing the open source is geared towards a strategy of which you may not be part in. You can become part of by fulfilling the tasks for that project, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're one of the in-group. Some of them, you could, you could not, but it's that's for me, that's, that's a small difference that makes the whole world. You have to also be careful because the open source world is is open enough that you can wind up creating a community without intending it. Um, I... I came across some old code on GitHub that was in an old language, and um, it was in. Uh, I know I'm the iOS guy, so it was in Objective C, and I wanted it in Swift. So I did some edits on it, and the guy basically said, "Hmm, that's great. You own it now." <laughs> yes, <laughs> it, GitHub is is definitely a place where you can find out. You touch it, you own it. So, <laughs> I that also happens in large code bases. I found. Like you can become the expert. Well, not even even the small code bases. Like, haven't you ever been in a job and said, "Oh, the build system is kind of funny. Let's make it better." And now all of a sudden, you're the CI person. Yep. Yes. That's it. You're the CI person. Everybody has a CI well, I mean, problem. They come in to in, you. The, in a really huge company because I, I worked for Microsoft well over many many years ago, and with that, you ha- there isn't great churn in the company, but the churn is sufficient in the developers that some of the code is older than some of the developers working on it. <laughs> yes, so you happens. can find yourself being thrown a bug, finding out that person not only doesn't work for the company, he's retired, he's died, and you are oh. now the owner oh. of that specific feature. You fix it, so now you are the owner of it now. Like You're, you're, not, the, you're the not the expert yes. on it. You're not the owner, you're the expert. You're the person people are going to start coming to while you're still there. 
Exactly. Yeah. When when you say they are retired now, it's gonna say and now they're happy. And then you say and now they died. It's like okay, not happy. But talking about all the 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 things around open source of uh, how you end up being in like these projects or like how do you even get into that? I initially had this problem when I was starting up in my career, and I actually wanted to get into open source, um, and somehow. Um, I did not find a project that was like probably welcoming enough uh, in my case, uh, which allowed me to maybe contribute. I did try a couple of times. And then what I ended up doing is I ended up creating um, a repository for myself. Uh, this one is called Android Examples. It's just small Android examples that anyone could just download and, and run it. And it will demonstrate a single functionality so eventually what it ended being is that a lot of newcomers who wanted to get into uh, open source would start opening pull request into that and this repository now has more than 100 examples right now um, so even though i'm maintaining it but uh, what i've also found out is that these repositories or, or these special open source code that has less barrier of entry as in it's easier for people to to start doing contribution has helped them um, it helped me obviously as i obviously this repository grew over time and then more people started contributing so i think yeah so making making sure that that you find the right repository to contribute is also important um, otherwise like if you jump into something that has as Pak already said uh, you have something like a commercial interest it becomes a bit hard to contribute in those areas um, but yeah obviously there is a bit of a barrier of entry that I've also seen myself something that I've that I've heard people say and this is the same when you get on your first job or maybe your first couple or maybe after many many years <laughs> you're worried that other people are uh, that you don't know about certain things so that your code is wrong or that things are going bad and and people is not happy about your things and if you put yourself out there they're gonna start throwing tomatoes at you and I found that in reality like nobody cares that's yes. in, in a good and in a bad sense so if I got a bad reaction or a negative reaction every time I put something out <laughs> like it would be so much better because at least I got a reaction. But most of the time, you go, you say, "Ah, I built these things, two stars, three stars, five stars." Like if somebody spends their time pushing you down and like throwing tomatoes at you, it's like, oh, okay, at least somebody cares enough that they that they can do something about it. And most of the time, it disappears on the noise on the internet. There's too much stuff going on. So actually, promoting your project so other people can. Throw tomato side it is also part of the things that you can do for fun. And it fits both ways, both for your regular job and for open source. You learn how to do certain things about dealing with uh, people who come for questions, who come from answers, who, who like interact with you, and you can apply the approaches that you take in open source to the to work, and you can take the approaches that you take to work to open source, and kind of like it helps you grow. Some of these people that we started doing the Arrow project together, we grew in a way that we that we like do versioning control, modularization, uh, dealing with community requests, dealing with nasty uh, people coming to the issues and saying like everything is broken. With the people saying functional programming is it's a fad and you're all frauds, that kind of thing. And those things we couldn't deal well with, like maybe four or five years ago. Maybe some of, some of the contributors could, and but you learn as, as you gain experience. So it's another way of like adding additional experience, and maybe in places that you cannot exercise on your day to day job. And I believe that's 
that's also really good. It's not like in every job. You cannot do like practice surgeon outside of work. Like maybe you can have like a potato and like, you know, or a grape and like sewing in and, and out, but you cannot have like a human being that you could practice on and, and you cannot practice law in, in your like living room, but you can practice programming and like community building in your living room. And, and that's also really helpful. So use, you could use that opportunity. At the same time, it's not mandatory. If you don't feel like it, if you value some other things more, if you prefer your time to be spent hiking or something else, like that's completely valuable. I also don't believe that we should just, if that is not on your CV, you're not committed enough. That's also, it's not about that for me at all. So speaking of your CV, you mentioned functional programming. Yes. Now, Maybe it's because I'm self-taught and I don't, and I never really went there. But to me, functional programming was always to get something done, you do A, B, and C. And to do A, you do one, two, and three. Maybe my concept of this is completely wrong. Can you give me a, a bird's eye view of what functional programming actually is? Sure. Uh, for me, it's about a constrained design space. So I have a set of operations on data that or or flow control of the program if you prefer that are based on data that i can use to compose any given program and you say oh you cannot compose all of the programs with those pieces maybe not all of them maybe not with all the requirements for performance or for x y and z but i can compose many of them or i can compose most of them so if i can chunk my problem space into a, then B, and C, and A is a parallelization operation, B is traversing each one of the elements and launching and launching some side effect, asynchronous call, and then error handling, and then, so I'm given the pieces that I can use to design those solutions, and those pieces are constrained enough that there's a whole set of tools that can help you test with them that are not available for more general solutions. Uh, one example is like, if you have uh, a function that takes an input and has an output, and you know the the formula, so to speak, that that for this set of inputs, this is the expected output, you have a tool that can generate n number of inputs for it. If your function actually modifies a global variable that is in some other place and all that kind of stuff, it's much more difficult to test it. So for me, functional programming is not about correctness that many people would do or about expressiveness. For me, it's about like hacking stuff together as fast as I can with a set of um, with, with a set of assurances that I'm, I haven't clowned it up too much. Like it's not too wrong or too broken because I'm building it from smaller pieces that I know I've tried and tested. So that is the restriction of the solution space is what's really helping me build solutions faster because I know the pieces that I can use to build those things. And it makes it like a little bit magical. And as I said, it doesn't, apply to every single program all of the time forever, but it applies to a lot of them. And I've been shipping features for a number of years based on those principles. And even if they don't quite apply, like it's, they've been there. And that's been the, the greatest, like the best thing about it for me, basically. I noticed that there is an intro to FP series. FP is the functional programming that you wrote on your blog post. We'll add it into the show notes. Uh, and I myself have read it. I think that you actually go through the process of explaining functional programming pretty nicely. So I, I like I would suggest the listeners to actually go through it too. Yeah. It's a very nice uh, functional programming series. You learn a lot. Also corresponds to Android domain, which is also great. Uh, 
Um, and then um, because we are talking about functional programming uh, and you also mentioned Aero project itself, um, maybe you could give us a rundown on what Aero project itself is for our listeners and obviously like people who are listening in, uh, you can explain exactly what this project does and, and what are the different uh, like different parts of it because I've obviously noticed um, some different parts it has. It has something called Aero FX, Aero Meta and like a bunch of other different parts uh, as a project. So what happened is when we were with this group of friends, we were trying to learn functional programming together. Some of them knew from Scala, where there's already like a whole ecosystem built for it. Same as there is for F Sharp or Camel or Haskell. And we said, okay, maybe we can rebuild part of that stack so we can learn about it. And that was the beginning of the project. We built a certain set of tools that are now used by a lot of places. Like ThoughtWorks the other day said they are using it in all of their projects. And it's like a baseline for them. So it's, uh, it's a, a thing that you can bolt on on top of Kotlin that gives you those functional constructs that are available in, across all the different languages that have support for them. And as the project grew, we said, okay, what would be fun to build? Or what are we really missing? Oh, we want to build a concurrency framework similar to Kotlin Xcoroutines with the APIs that we know from those other languages where we know that <laughs> solutions have already been built. We took them, we put them in, we are iterating on them. So at the beginning, it was like this IO generic type. These days, it's more based on suspend functions, but the result is the same. How do you parallelize? How do you jump to the right thread? How do you do cancellation and how you do resource management? And building those is actually a lot of fun. There was a lot of like, I understand now how the JVM works and those kind of things. And the funny part, it's so generic, you may find this interesting. There's also an iOS counterpart that is called Bow. It's Bow and Arrow. Bow is the iOS part where they build the same things that are available in Arrow for Android. They are available in Swift. And they've been there for like a couple of years now and they are used. I don't know how widespread they are. I think a little bit, but they're they are already available. And it's amazing that that is also a possibility. We know people who are porting some of the things even to Dart or some of the stuff based on Arrow, which in time was based on Scala framework called CATS, which in time was based on this whole, there's this whole history of it. And building it, it's an exercise of learning and also fun. Like it was so much fun to say, okay, how does concurrency work on the JVM? How can we rebuild it? How we can rebuild it with these specific constraints? And and it did it and it works and it's been accepted and, and we're going through like revision whatever 1.0 is coming up is coming up at some point I'm going to say soon or this year something <laughs> that I don't really know but but that was that was the story of it and it's amazing that at some point what was our weekend project grew to the point where right now it's like a thought works adopt kind of thing it was like surprising but good because it made sense but it's not something that we created. It's not something that we invented. It's a space that we know was missing. We filled it, and it made sense. Like it, it was just that it made sense, and and that was it. And I'm so happy about it too, Jan. I wish we could listen to more of this, but unfortunately, we only have so long for the podcast. But the rest of the episode and an amazing interview you can find on YouTube, uh, Paco. It has been fantastic having you on the show. It, we have learned so much, and it was such an incredible opening of that chapter from the book, which is an amazing read. Um, if you know, if you haven't read the book, uh, "Living by the Code," 
Paco's chapter is is absolutely outstanding and talks a lot about what we've talked about today, but uh, other details as well. We can find you on Twitter at Paco Works, correct? Correct. P a c o w o r k s. Obviously, Nishant is a is uh, Nis rules everywhere on the internet. You can find me as Podcast Drew. In two weeks, we're going to have Laura Martin on the show, and she'll be talking about her chapter from the book. Uh, until then, we're going to head back to the Emerald Castle. Ray, back to you. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWendell.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.